working here. So my backup to, anyway. So anything I would like to talk about before we get started? I don't know, Andy. <laughs> that is, that's a question I'm not taking up. If you got about an hour, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're not, but we're not up to 14. It's, gonna, it's probably going to be a while before we're at 14. Because, you know, it's a funny thing. Because here's, here's, you know, my, the way I do these classes is I just started this more than a decade ago. Where you just start at verse 1. And if you can, just read through every single verse all the way to the end, skipping very little. Sometimes there are gigantic lists of things that you'll just hit the high, high points of. But most of the time, you're reading through every verse. And you discover that there's chapters you go through pretty quickly. And there's other ones where, boom, things slow way down. And the writer takes you down into a deep level of detail and challenge. And that's what happens in 2 Samuel. 11. So, is there anything y'all would like to talk about before we get started? Yes? I have a question, because in Sunday school you said on your website there was a reference where to read through the Bible in a more yes. efficient way. Yes. I signed up for it, but I only saw one thing there that just said read the Bible daily or something like that. Put there should there. be a file to download there. Oh, okay. uh, look, look at that page. There should be a file there. I haven't looked at it. It's called Through the Bible. If it hasn't emailed me, okay. I will find that file on my computer and I will send it to you. Okay. It's actually just a reading plan developed by the Navigators, yeah. which is a discipleship ministry that's been around forever. Okay. Anything else? Answer. Okay, thank you, thank you, yes. Don't forget Jonathan and the choirs and the harpists and the angels and everybody else <laughs> choir concert this Friday night in the sanctuary, so it should be wonderful. Yes, sir? And what is the last Sunday for John? I don't know that coming up pretty quick. I don't know the last Sunday. I don't have any more. I don't know have any. It's a Sunday. This Sunday? Okay. I don't have, but uh, I, don't, I don't really have any more detail than you guys do. So, you know. There we go. There we go. What can I tell you? I don't. There is the, yes, we found a replacement. Yeah. And he, his resume sounds pretty strong to me. But Jonathan's really strong too. So anyway, things happen, change. You know, Jonathan and Lu I do know this, Jonathan and Lusick are starting up a girls chorus here in Dallas. Yes, a citywide co chorus for girls, singers. Right, that they're going to try to get that off the ground. So that's really good. Anyway, okay. So this Friday night, seven o'clock, Sanctuary. All right, well, Taylor did say he's already hired somebody. yeah, Taylor has hired somebody. It's got a strong resume. Mike? We close in our house Friday. Okay, very good. Very good. We'll just keep praying all goes well and that goes through and everybody's happy when it's all done. And to, how many of you remember Michael Agnew? He was the young student. Okay, he is... He is in some, he's in surgery now. He has a bad diagnosis and he's undergoing about the toughest surgery there is. It's called a Whipple, where they basically disconnect everything in your midsection, cut some of, of it out, and then they reconnect it. And it's, it's 
sort of a surgery of last resort, I think. So he was, he was very scared. Um, he's now out at Irving Bible Church, and um, his congregation, of course, is with him. But please lift up Michael and Zara and the family in your prayers. He's a good guy, good guy. So that, no, that's a different Michael. Yeah, that's Michael, whose name I can't remember, Michael. So, yeah, Michael Agnew had the beard. He's like 30, 31. I can't believe he's over 30, honestly. And he was the rapper, not the rapper, the spoken word guy. Yeah. What? Of Psalms. Of Psalms. And he would just, he, would, he taught my class a few times, remember? Yeah, yeah. Awesome guy. Big Astros fan. Too bad. Too bad about that, but you know, otherwise a good guy. And Disney. So, okay. Well, let's talk about David for a few minutes. Okay, so we can set up chapter 11. When we begin chapter 11, David has ascended to a height that no Israelite king or before that judge ever had. Um, he, when he becomes the king of the United Tribes, he conquers Jerusalem takes it from the Jebusites, he's going to make it his capital. It is pretty well situated um, for that. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. We saw that story. And he proceeds to expand the Israelite kingdom to the north, to the south. This is the map of this growing kingdom. Now his son will, will grow it further. It will be even more wealthy under Solomon but David, David, is, David really takes it forward. He's going up. In the eyes of the world, he's up, up, up. He's kind of on top of the world when, when you come to um, the end of chapter 10. Um, we're told that God was with him in all of this. And you don't have to have the Bible to understand what happens to people when they reach the top and have, in the case of ancient sovereigns, absolute power. Um, they can do what they want. And we have seen that David is spending much less time inquiring of God. When you first meet David and Samuel, he's going to God about everything, nearly. You know, what should I have for breakfast, practically? But now, not so much. But his, his earthly ascendance is unmistakable. And in chapter 11, there are four episodes of David's kingly arrogance, abusing his royal prerogatives, and it's all very surprising. Because how do we, what are we brought up knowing about David? Well, you know, he is the idealized king of Israel. He is the one after God's own heart. And remember when we ran into that phrase in 1 Samuel 16, we, I told you that that phrase doesn't really mean what we tend to think it means, that he's like the perfect choice. It means he is God's choice. Okay? Okay, he's, just, he's God's choice. And no matter who God chose, the same problems would arise because all humans 
have a darkness in their hearts. There's only been one who didn't, one human, and that was Jesus. And to deny the reality of that is just to deny a basic truth about the world that if you just open your eyes and look around, you can see the truth of. So, um, with that, there are four, and I'll point out the four as we go as we go through them. If we, if we get, we may not get through all four today, depending on what you guys. Because honestly, for much of today, you can do this as well as I can. Okay, right? You would it the the we return to a very direct um, piece of way to write. So look at chapter 11, there's a big time break, who knows how much time, all we're told is, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Do, when they, have, do they have a meeting in the fall of the previous year to decide which battle, do all the kings come to? No. Nope, not to my knowledge. They, why do they go off to war in the springtime? Why does the Ukrainian counteroffensive wait for the spring and summer? Because better weather, right? Um, in the spring, at the time, and pay the, all the words matter here. There, there are not many words, actually, for, given everything that happens in chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So what doesn't King, what doesn't David do? He doesn't go. It's his prerogative. But it's not what kings do. Kings were the, were the ultimate tribal chieftain. They were the commander-in-chief. They were supposed to lead their troops in battles. They were the chief fighter. And that's what he's always done, right? He's always been out there leading the men. But now, though it's the time of year when kings go out to war, David is not. He sends Joab, his really, his second in command. That's really who Joab is, because David is the commander, being the king. What? <laughs> he probably should have. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So Rabbah is, oh, I didn't get out my point. It's just that little inset area right there. Right, that, that's a piece where they're going after, and there's a city there known as Rabbah, and these cities all have what? What makes a city a city in this world? Walls. So the only way in the ancient world you're going to take such a city, unless you can find some sneaky way in or you can bribe somebody inside to open the gates for you is to lay siege to it and wait them out. Okay? And Scott, that's in current day Jordan, right? On the other side yes, of Yes, it's current day Jordan. Yeah. Yep. So David has sent Joab in the army. Well, verse 2. One evening... Evening, time of day matters here. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. He's not sleep, you know, I don't know, he's probably not sleep, trying to sleep, but he's just kind of bored. Right? He doesn't really, it, he gets up, he kind of walks around the palace, you know, the roof of the palace. Well, from the roof, 
he saw a woman bathing. Now these roofs are flat, whether it's the palace or your typical home for a, just a family. They're flat, it's partly because of the building materials they have, and because this is a hot part of the world, and because the further you get to the ground, the smellier things get. If you go to visit like any the ruins of any ancient city, you, the homes of the, of the richer people are up on the hillsides to escape not just the heat, but the stench down on the ground because they don't always, they don't have the same, you know, sanitation systems that we do, right? So from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. It's a spring, don't know, really, we don't even really know what time it is, how much time has passed. It could be a really hot day in Israel. And Patty and I have been there on really hot days where you just kind of bake in the strength of the sun. And she's gone up to bathe, to cool off in the evening, breathe. Nothing really unusual about that. But he sees her, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. He, yep, I was right. He's just kind of bored. And he sees her, and who is that? So, the someone comes back, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right then, David knows who she is. Look, turn, put a, put a finger right there, and turn to 2 Samuel 23. I just want to show you the list for yourself. 2 Samuel 23 has the list of the heroes. Look at 23, 24. <laughs> Chapter 23, verse 24. Chapter 23. And you'll see it begins among the 30. These were the 30 heroes. These were the 30 closest to David. These were the reliables. These were... These were men who David trusted and who trusted David. And if you look down all the way down the list to verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite. Could be that he is actually born a Hittite, which is up in the uh, modern-day Turkey and Syria, an old empire. But it's also possible that he is part of a Hittite faction that was in Jerusalem when David captured it. Not sure, but he is part of the 30. And you know him and you will know him as Uriah the Hittite. When you meet Bathsheba in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, her name is not even given. The poor woman, her name is not even given. Pretty much this is it for a while, Bathsheba. She's known as what? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David knows who she is and that she is the wife of one of his trusted, most trusted senior, you know, commanders and associates. Okay, verse 4. 
Then David sent messages, messengers to get her. That is a very regrettable translation. You have, Don, you have, a, you have the King James, yes. don't you? It says, take her, right? Uh, and David sent messages and took her. Took her, took her. Because where in the NIV, or even the NRSV, which I don't get, and it should simply read, David sent messengers to take her, they change it to get her. The word take is so important. And I did research yesterday, actual research. <laughs> and so I looked at the word, Hebrew word here. It is the plain, ordinary, everyday Hebrew word take. More importantly, it is the same word used in 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel says to the Israelites, you don't want a king because they're takers. They'll take your wives, they'll take your sons, they'll take your daughters, they'll take your money, they'll take your livestock. Take, 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 take. It is the same Hebrew word as when Nathan the prophet will confront David later about takers. So why they change it to get, I don't know. There are very, this whole little section is built off a few verbs and the take of verb is so important. He sends guys from the palace to take her. To take her. She came to him, he is king, she came, and he slept with her. In a more traditional translation, it would be like he, he lay with her or something like that. So, he had right, he had sex with her in, 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 uh, in some translations. What? Could this be rape? Is there any hint of violence? No. Does rape require violence? Yeah. I don't think so. Not, I mean, I taught at North Texas, and I can know for a while, I can always remember getting this speech, okay, that they gave us newbies, saying, no, if you're teaching there, you cannot date or have sex with a student. It is, there, the power differential is too great. We will see it as non-consensual. So we could use the word non-consensual if that's a little easier. It's not, it, we will, it will be non-consensual by definition, regardless of what she says. Any indication that she has consented to this? No. Not, I mean, he, he's the king, he sends guys, they take her, take her. Not that they went to her and asked, hey, you know, you're doing anything? <laughs> David's a little bored, you want to come over for tea? None, none of that. Look, it's so sparse. It's built off like six verbs. The whole thing, it's boom, 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 boom. David sent messengers to get her, to take her. She came to him and he slept with her. And now we're told in a parens, that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. What do you think that parens is about? It's setting up what's coming. That because she just finished her period, if she shows up pregnant, it's going to be because of David, not Uriah. Okay, that's all that parens is about. The writer is helping you understand the gravity of what is happening here. So she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a month of the uncleanness. Then she went back home. 
Now, I ask you, is there any sense of romance in this? No. Any sense of relationship? No. Is this not, is this not going to be for David a one-night stand? Yes. Does he know who she is? Yes. He's, not, he's not even doing this out of ignorance. He's just king. And he can do what he wants. Darn it, what's the point of being king if you can't do what you want? He's king. And so he sends the messengers. They take her, bring her to David. She has sex with him, and she goes home. That's going to be the end of the story. If you ask David what, right there, he'd say, yeah, that would be the end of chapter 11 right there. Except verse 5. The woman conceived. Notice how... She, so she, she's really stripped of her identity as Bathsheba. Why? Why do you think that is? Because women weren't considered very... One, it's a very patriarchal world, yes. but it also focuses us on David, not her. Focuses on David. Who is, who is, who is committing the sin here? David. David. There's no indication that she wants this, that she has seduced him. There's nothing in it about her over there doing some kind of, you know, sexy little dance as she's, you know, bathing in the, on the roof of her own home in the cool of the evening. Nothing like that. People say some wild things. Well, she should know better. Well, she should, because they can't abide the thought of what David has done. And here's the thing, you can abide the thought of what David has done because he's going to do worse in this same very chapter. Is that English? Same very chapter? This very same chapter? Okay, yeah. It's amazing. These four verses, they made a full-length motion picture with Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. Did they really? <laughs> See, Gary, we're like a tag team here. This is me and my buddy, yeah. Yeah, so I found, I found this movie poster. It was one of the early biblical epics filled with romance and, yeah, Gregory Peck, Susan Hayward. Oh, yes. Gary Brooks, stop it. Yes, oh, oh. And, you know, there's a bunch of that stuff out there. I've never seen this movie. I guess someday maybe I'll watch it. What? It's great. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Has nothing to do with this. Rich, Rich Morgan suggested a few weeks ago to me that I should do a series on Sunday mornings, you know, um, the Bible according to Hollywood. And we'll take, we'll take a number of different movies and just show you how don't rely on the movies to teach you the Bible. So, yeah, yeah. Mona. Yeah, David, of course, David's breaking commandments all over the place in this chapter 11. Of course, he has broken commandments the other day. How many commandments do we break? Now, the way the commandments are structured, okay, I think you can delude yourself into thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Have you? And that's why number 10 is there. So what's the, what's the 10th commandment? Covet. Don't covet what your neighbor has. I always kind of thought that was there to be this 
catch-all to remind you that no, nobody escapes the power of sin. It's within us, and David doesn't. David does not. And here, he uses his, his kingly power in a terrible way. I think one of the really, I mean, he asks who she is, and he's told who she is, and he doesn't care. He goes forward, and so he violates her, because I, I don't see how, there's nothing in here that describes to me something consensual. She was taken, that's the key verb in these three verses, taken, she was taken by David's messengers. And he, so David violates her, whether it's an actual violent encounter or not. And David violates Uriah because David is an adulterer against Uriah. You know, in, in the, not in the Jewish society, but in the Greco-Roman society of Jesus' day, in ancient Rome, men could basically have sex with anybody, any woman they wanted to. Anybody, really, but any woman they wanted to, without any societal, you know, shame, shame, no, nope, as long as she wasn't the wife of another man. Yep. And now she's come to David in chapter 5, and said these, David knows these are big questions. The woman, now I may rephrase, I'm wrong. She, a woman conceived and she sent word to David. So she doesn't even come and confront David with this. She sends some kind of messenger or something with a note saying, I am pregnant. Imagine David at that moment. He knows he's done wrong. He knows what he has done to her, what he has done to Uriah. He knows. So, I am pregnant. Quite, quite an important little speech in the Bible here that's three words long, written speech, I'm sure. I am pregnant. Okay, so any thoughts or questions? Because this is the second episode of him exercising his royal prerogatives. What would have happened to Bathsheba instead of going to David? She went to her husband. Well, see, that's worthy of speculation, isn't it? Would she be killed? By well, I don't know. Don's asking, what happened if she hadn't gone to David, instead went and told her own, her own husband what had happened? I don't know. I'm guessing it wouldn't, wouldn't have been pretty. But you know, not, but as you say, that's not the story. The story is David. Not, the story is focused on David, yeah, utterly, utterly on David. She's just the, uh, the vessel. That's well, I mean, I mean, she's a real person. She's a real woman. But people so often, no. people so often will lay bad motives and other things on her when they are not in the text. And I think if the fact that the name isn't used makes us focus utterly upon David. It, what will David do? And for her world, it's collapsing. Because where's her husband Uriah? See in town? 
No, he's out fighting. He's part of the army. He's a fighting dude. Commander dude, more uh, sure he is. And so he's away. And now the king has taken her and she's pregnant. Her world is falling apart. It's falling in on her. She's not king. And she's a woman. So what is to be done? But we're not going to focus. It doesn't focus on her. The story is about David. What is David going to do? Okay, anything else? Verse 6. So, David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite. Give him, give him leave. <laughs> Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Have a beer, you know, <laughs> right? Sure, you can see it. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, Uriah, and wash your feet. Now, why is he telling Uriah to wash his feet? So he can go inside? He could go inside? Maybe, maybe. What? Go see his wife. Go see his wife. And will the next next step? Go have sex with your wife. Wash your feet is a euphemism for having sex. Feet, feet, feet are feet, feet. No, it's not a no, 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 no. It's not a stretch. Nope. Feet. In the Hebrew Bible, feet are a euphemism for genitals. Yes, they can be. I mean, there are just feet. There's all kinds of foot wash, but that's not what this is. Well, he's saying to him, wash your feet. David doesn't care whether Uriah has clean feet. He has a bigger problem. She is pregnant. So what does he do? Yeah, see, there you go. Yeah, she's told to go sleep at Joab's feet. Anyway, I can just tell you that I did a lot of work on this little piece here, and scholars are pretty well agreed. Sure, because it's the only thing that makes sense in the context of the story. It doesn't make sense to say, well, let's go home and wash your feet. Here's what he wants them to do. It's the same thing as him saying, go home, kick back, have a drink, Watch a football game and ha have have a little have a little sex while you're at it because I know you've been fighting really really hard out there and I'm just I'm just giving you a little R and R here. Is it telling her to go, telling him to go visit it? You know, process. It's his own wife, right? It's his own wife. Do you think he's feeling guilty? Is David feeling guilty? Yeah, I do. When whether God regardless of how much guilt he feels, he knows he has a problem. Uriah is not a nobody. Uriah is a somebody. Right? So at least David recognizes that he should not have done this. Is there any mention of God so far? No. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. You know, let me figure something. Nope. Nope. He simply sends for Uriah. Uriah comes home. He says, go down to your house and <laughs> wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace 
and a gift from the king was sent after him. It's a, one of those big fruit baskets, you know, <laughs> with a couple of bottles of wine. Sure. Ah, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And can you imagine when David finds out, what do you mean? What do you mean he slept here at the door of the palace with all of my servants? He's supposed to go home and he's supposed to have sex with Bathsheba. <laughs> Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home. So we ask Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? You're out there with all these brutes in the mud. It's like you're a burning man in. <laughs> Why didn't you go home? I sent you home with wine and a fruit basket and the whole works so you can Bathsheba could have this wonderful weekend and then you'll go back to the war. It'll be great. Uriah said to David, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel and Judah, they're all staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country. He's saying everything here is temporary. We, you know, we don't have this city all rebuilt. Have you? People are living in tents within the city walls of Jerusalem. It's all an upset. My, the men are sleeping out there in the, in the countryside you know, on the bare ground, and here you are offering me a fruit basket and some wine and a weekend of R&R. &R. How could I go, here's what he says, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is an honorable man. He Being David has offered this enticing little temptation to him, right? But Uriah says, no, my men are out there. My men are out there. I'm, I'm not going to do this. My place is with them. You wonder if he wants to say, David, you should be out there with the men. This is the time when, men, when kings go to war. And what the heck are you doing back here at the palace? But I suspect he didn't say that. Why? Because David's king. Well, then David said to Uriah, stay here one more day, one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. David's thinking, okay, how long can he hold out? Right, just one more day. So David prepares another fruit basket, more <laughs> wine, better selection, lots of those little meat things that come, the little sausages that come <laughs> rolled up in the stick, you know. Scented candles, Patty adds, yes, scented candles. <laughs> so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with David, and David made him drunk. Oh, my gosh. David is pulling out all the stops. It's probably after midnight, too, because you know what happens after midnight. Nothing good. Nothing good. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. So David wined him and dined him and got him drunk, and through all of that, Uriah remains true to his troops, true to his sense of what his duty is. 
and what the honorable thing is for him to do and, and say no to this rather strangely offered R&R. Do you think this is typical behavior that some fighting guy would be called back from the front and so just go spend the weekend with your wife and here's your basket and go wash your feet, dude. No, no, it's not typical. How would that be typical? In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it. Here's the irony. He sent it with Uriah. So he write, David writes a note to Joab, who's the commander in the field, and he sends the note with Uriah, and the note reads, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So what's, what's the story here? They're besieging Rabbah. David sends word to Joab that he's to put Uriah up at the front and they're to strand him up there and allow him to be killed in battle. So we've gone from the second episode, um, David's taking of Bathsheba, through the third episode, the cover-up, and now we're entering the fourth episode, the murder of Uriah. And don't call it anything else than that. Any court would, would call this murder. This is all a conspiracy to get him dead. Okay? So while Joab, Joab had the city, that's Rabah, whoop, right there, the city under siege. While Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew <clears throat> the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. He couldn't convince Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, but he could arrange for him to be killed. It's, you remember when we, when earlier in Samuel, when David is with God and God's with David and he's just, he's ascending and it's, now, now he's like, He's like a stone tossed into a pond. And what do stones do when they're tossed into a pond? They sink. They sink, 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 sink. This is terrible. The taking of Bathsheba is terrible. The cover-up is kind of comical, but it is, it's terrible. And now this is the worst. He is taking Uriah's life. He's taking his life as David is thrashing around, trying to figure out the best road ahead for him given that Bathsheba is pregnant. Right? Isn't that what's happening? Okay, so thoughts, questions, reflections. Let's, talk, let's see if y'all have anything on your thoughts or minds you would like to talk about before we... Yes? 
You know, okay, so it does ask me, why is, do they hold David in such esteem? Gosh. I suspect that over time, much of this story was lost. If you read this story in the book of Chronicles, this time period in David's, because David's life appears in the book of Chronicles, you do not find this story. It's not in Chronicles, it's only in Samuel. God made David the big promise in 2 Samuel 7, that one from his family would always sit on the throne of Israel. And David was God's anointed, and he did take Israel to great, uh, you know, to ascendance. Um, but for those who knew this story, I mean, you wonder, like, in the scroll of Samuel, how often was this story read in public? Right? I do. I wonder, like, okay, even if it's in the scroll of Samuel, and there are synagogues, even in Jesus' day, that have a scroll of Samuel, how many of them chose to read this? There's certainly passages in the Bible that our lectionary, this three-year reading cycle, skips over because they're just too hard. They don't, they don't make any sense to us. So your question, this is David, how could this be? But the, we, the, the, the Messiahship connection to David is not, it, is, it, it goes to 2 Samuel 7. Yes. Uh, well, this is focused on David. Joab, his second in command, is an accessory to this crime. As we read through Samuel 2, does Joab ever get his come up for what he did? What, you're asking me to, to go beyond a teaser and tell you what's coming. <laughs> I'm not going to. Here's the thing to remember. Sure, here's the thing. What do we know about Joab? Not only is he an accomplice here, Joab is the one who tricked Abner and murdered him. Yeah. Remember, he said, oh, Abner, come on back, man. We'll sit down. We'll smoke a peace pipe and all that kind of stuff, you know. And Abner comes back, and Joab pff, kills him. So we know that Joab is not trustworthy. Yet he is David's second in command. And he, now he's an accessory to this crime. Okay? So, it is, it is, you know, you just, I know what the movie is all about, and I know the way, it seems like once a year, some biblical interpretation battle breaks out on Twitter amongst biblical preachers and scholars who are on Twitter, over this story. What exactly happened? Because so many people are repelled, as they should be in a way, right? By David's, David's what David does here. But it, it, even if you can convince yourself that David and Bathsheba is somehow this romantic story of a love denied and all that, he murders Uriah. That can't be denied. So the better way to see the story is to pay attention to the Hebrew. He takes Bathsheba, he takes Uriah's life. 
and connect. That's why I spend so much time talking about 1 Samuel 8. Kings are takers, 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 takers. That connects directly to the story. What's going to come after is going to connect directly to this story and connect directly to 1 Samuel 8. Yes? Okay, so that's a really good question. Why would he care about this? I think the primary reason, in addition to whatever guilt he feels, he doesn't want people to find out, maybe, you know, if you see yourself on a pedestal, as I fear he does by now, you really don't want people to find out, maybe, that there's a darkness in you. More significant is I think he he would fear Uriah and Uriah's troops and Uriah, you know, kings don't, even though they have absolute power, they're always at risk of rebellion, assassination. Read the story of the Caesars in Rome. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So much assassination, so much rebellion because there weren't elections in which you could force somebody out or dis express your displeasure with somebody. And we will see indeed later in 2 Samuel what David has to deal with, which all flows from the decisions, the terrible choices he makes here. You know, we all make, our lives are built on the choices we make. Our character is expressed in the choices we make. And David has been pretty much a golden boy to this point. Even though we do remember, we do remember that, um, remember Nabal, that's a story worth remembering. David got his temper up and he mounted up with 400 guys and they were going to go kill them all because of an insult until he stopped by whom? Who stopped him? Abigail. Abigail. Yeah. So you have these clues that there's a little more to David than you might think in amongst all of the very laudatory stories of David. As history has shown currently, the yeah. cover-up is worse than the crime. The cover-up's worse than the crime. <laughs> maybe, maybe. This is pretty bad. Ming, yeah. He's Anyway, who can't he cover this up from? <sighs> yes. Well, let's just see what happens. <laughs> Does God stay high on him or not? But it's a, they, this is, you know, these writers were very skilled. There's a lot of power in, the, um, in how, how economical, how sparse the writing is here. It's, it, it's not, there's not lots of words here. But we've covered a lot of choices, and they're bad choices. Boom, 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 bad choices. And now Uriah is dead. Okay, anything else? Verse 18. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, quote, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up at you, and he may ask you, well, why did you get so close to the city to fight? You got so close to the city walls, you idiot. 
Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the walls? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, Mr. Messenger Guy, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. You see? This Joab, he's a, he's a smart one. He's a good conniver, isn't he? So, verse 22, the messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The words that David was waiting to hear. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab, Mr. Messenger fellow. <sighs> what a sad tale. What a sad tale. As we go on through these coming chapters, which are, does anybody, no matter how much God smiles on you, does anybody escape the power of sin, the darkness of sin? When, when you think that you can escape the power of sin, that by golly, that darkness is never going to get you, <coughs> you have put yourself on a path to be devoured by it. Go to, as long as, put your, put your finger there and go to Genesis chapter 4. Woo! That's a ways back, isn't it? That's really good. It is easy to find Genesis 4. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Story of Cain and Abel, right? Adam and Eve's sons, after they're cast out of the garden, and you know the story, one kills the other, Cain kills Abel. But look at chapter 6. This is when Cain is upset because God isn't pleased with his offering. Verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching. What a great word. Crouching, like a beast crouches. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. I've always thought that was such a powerful depiction of the power of sin. And when people give, them, give themselves over to that and forego striving every day to do what is right in God's eyes, we shouldn't be surprised that terrible things come from that. And for David, who, by my reading of the chapters leading up to this, 
is, is we hear just less and less of David and God, like we heard a lot of David and God in 1 Samuel 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Twenty-six. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son, for it is David's son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God isn't happy with David any. This is terrible. How could God be happy with any part of this, with the taking of Bathsheba? with the cover-up, with the murder of Uriah. The only, the only thing that David does right here is that he provides a home for Bathsheba. And he takes in the child that is his own child. Now remember he has other sons, right? So he has sons by multiple women. So he, take, he, takes, he takes in this child um, and, and Bathsheba. But notice again, you don't, you don't see her name. She's just the wife of Uriah. Same as in Matthew 1 in Jesus' genealogy. The focus is on David. The fact that she is in Matthew's genealogy is telling. There are women in Matthew's genealogy they all, all of, their, of the women in Matthew's genealogy, they all have something out of the ordinary in their story. Some, some measure of maybe in the public's eyes, some, some sin of some kind, whether it's Tamar or um, Ruth, who's a Moabite, or even in this case, Bathsheba. So, any thoughts or questions? I do. I have a question. Yes, my love. So. Yeah, yes, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I am guessing since it's a time of mourning has to pass, so this is a month or weeks, plus she's already been pregnant, so we know yes. it's like a couple months in. I guess if this was a normal person, everybody would wonder if this was David's child. But I guess because he is the king, has multiple wives and concubines, does he just one day go out like, you know, here he is, the baby? Um, well, where the baby came we're not from? told. Um, right, if I were going to strive to fill in blanks, which I hate to do, um, her husband's dead, killed in battle, and he takes her into his harem and makes her one of his wives to provide protection and security for her. And, you know, it will, it, it, let me just, just to go ahead, even though I don't like to do that very often, this is not, this is not Solomon. This is not Solomon. Okay? Solomon's to come. This is not Solomon. 
So we have a jillion questions around this because the writers don't give us most of this. The most, of, I mean, this is a whole movie. They get it all wrong. The writers don't don't give us much of the kind of questions and detail and everything that we want. It's so sparse. It's just it. And the focus is on David and David's sin and the terrible choices he is making. And the last line sums the whole thing up. The thing David had done displeased Yahweh, of course. You could contrast it with the last line. Not the last line. I would have to look. I thought it was the last line. Never mind. The one in where the previous time where it says God is with David in this. So that's contrasted to the thing David had done displeased Yahweh. Okay. Yes. Um, when a woman's husband dies, her brother yes. or family relative generally marries her. That's sort of the policy. So I'm assuming that her husband did not have a brother. I'm assuming that David, knowing how guilty he was, he could have denied her. But he did bring her in to his court. So we might assume that he was trying to do something good, even though he had screwed up so badly before this. We, 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 David appears to be trying to do something right. We could assume. I don't like to assume things that that Uriah didn't have any brothers because the typical thing in leveret marriage would be that the brother would take in the widow. But it may he doesn't have any. Maybe she doesn't have a place to go. But we're not told any. We're not told any of that. But still in it, I see David providing her a home and his child. But we're not even told that David was trying to do right in the eyes of the Lord, are we? No. Nope. We're told the sparse fact that he took her in. Um, and she became his wife. Now that's that wife thing, you know, their first wives, second wives, and all kinds of things. She goes to the harem, um, and she bore him a son. But the clincher is that last line. Okay? Well, Yahweh sent Nathan, that's the prophet, who's working at this time, the prophet of God, to David. Not, remember, Nathan is the one who brings God's promise to David that one from his family will always sit on the throne of Israel. Well, the Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he told him a story. Here's the story. Well, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. The lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. The lamb was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Rip, what, right? So the rich man goes to the poor man, exercises his prerogatives, rips the little lamb out of the poor man's arm, has it slaughtered, prepared, and served to his guests. David burned with anger against the rich man and said to Nathan, As surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan, here's how I always see this. Then Nathan, turning slightly away from David, spins on his heel with his arm and finger out, and he says, you are the man. That was Raymond Matthew. Yes, Raymond Matthew. <laughs> you are the man, Nathan says to David. You did this. The rich man took the lamb from the poor man. <sighs> you are the powerful moment oh my goodness David walked right into it didn't he how unself-aware is David at this moment you and I hear the story told by Nathan we get it and we've only been about this for an hour or so Nathan said to David you are the man this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why, why, why did you despise the word of Yahweh? by doing what is evil in his eyes. How'd, how would David know what is right in God's eyes? Look to the law of Moses. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Instead, David did, he despised what was right in God's eyes and instead did what he wanted because he could. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took, there's that word again, you see, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, oh boy, therefore, it's always a big word, isn't it? In the Bible, always. <laughs> Pay attention. Notice all of the therefores. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. David has brought violence into his own household. You know that the people in that household have seen all of this. They've watched it happen. The populace at large might not have a clue about much of this, but you know that his family does. Does he have sons, David? Yeah, they're listed for us. 
Does he have daughters? Yeah, but they're not listed for us. <laughs> David has sons. They see this. What does this teach them about how they should then live when they have prerogatives of their own to exercise? You see? I'm, I'm always reminded at this point of God speaking to Moses in Exodus 34 when he's describing himself and he says, and, and he says the, vis, the um, sin, the consequences of sin will be visited on the children and the children's children and the children's children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we tend to read that as if God is waiting around to smite great-grandchildren for something their great-grandparents did, which is completely wrong because God is not, first of all, God's not a smiter in that way, but are the sins of parents often visited upon their children? Do families learn unhealthy? unhealthy, that would be our word today. Do families learn unhealthy ways of living? Do they learn, where do we learn violence? Where, where do we learn, where do we learn bigotry? In the musical South Pacific, there is a song called You've Got to Be Taught. And it's sung by a young white lieutenant in the Navy who has gone to what we now call Indonesia He's in Bali, and he falls in love with the native girl. And they know, they know that can't be going anywhere because of the prejudices and the bigotry. Um, and he sings this song written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. You've got to be taught. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. And I think there's, there's some real truth to that. And now God says to David, oh, look what you've done. Look what you've done. It's, it's like, I feel like as a, as a parent, I would say to my, look what you've done. The sword will never depart from your house. There's no taking this back. You can't undo it. You can't, there's no rewind button. You've done it. They've seen you do it. The sword will never depart your house because you despised me, God says. You despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And that gives you a hint that did she want to come and be David's wife? Maybe not. Maybe Uriah had a brother. But David wanted her, and David took her to be his wife. And he sensed that she said yes to anything in this entire story. No, not really. You could say, well, she came with the messengers. No, they took her. She didn't have any choice. She could, you know, I guess she could have denied it and then dealt with the consequences of that. <sighs> this is what Yahweh says. To David. This is Nathan telling David, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. There are going to be severe consequences that are going to flow from all of this. And we're, in the coming weeks, we will read about the consequences of this story. Of what David has done. Verse 13, David then said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan replied, Yahweh has taken away your sin. You are not going to die because of what you have done. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for Yahweh, the son born to you will die. Yeah. Um, back a ways when uh, Uriah says to David, the ark and the uh, ark and Israel are staying in tents. Yes. Well, that was one of the things that Yahweh said. You got me in the tent here. I mean, you, you know, you need to build me a building. Obviously, God's not too happy with him that he hadn't fulfilled his promise. Well, that's true. That's true. Because that promise is going to be kept by Solomon, his son by Bathsheba. That's coming. But But that's still coming. You know, there's this big sense of temporariness around all of Israel at this point. And Uriah says, look, look how everybody's living. Look how the army's out. I'm not going to go home and wash my feet okay so wow so Yahweh when you read some of these paths like I will close with one thought because I have two minutes when you read these passages you need to remember that for the ancient people God was the first cause of all things But how that plays out, right, would be up to the people. We now understand there's lots, lots of, 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 we understand weather systems and all kinds of things now. The ancients have had a different way of viewing some of this, but sin has consequences. And David's terrible, terrible sin against Bathsheba when he took her the first time and now took her, took, isn't that the word again? Took her to be his wife um, will have terrible consequences for David. And David's children and so on. And this is, this is where it all begins. So when we come together next week, we will continue with this epic story of David. And we'll... Um, begin to see the wheels coming off. Begin to see the wheels coming off. All of which begins in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11. So... 
Okay, anything quick before I pray us out of here? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to this story of David and Bathsheba, and we hardly know what to make of it. It's not the, not the way the story was told to us when we were in, you know, third grade Bible, third, third grade Sunday school, or even as adults, or even when we watched the movies. It's a hard story. Let it remind us that we should all be striving every day to do what is right in your eyes and striving every day to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and put our work into that so that we do know what is right in your, in your eyes and what your will is and what is pleasing to you and what is good. This is the life of a disciple, part of it at least, and we're grateful to have the opportunity, the opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.